Gabe. And I'm Matt. And this is the Tentacle Bot Podcast, where we uh, break down new albums and kind of uh, discuss them for your entertainment. Uh, today we got a little special one on the dock for you. Matt, what are we talking about today? So today we're actually talking about the record by the band Wrist Meat Razor entitled Replica of a Strange Love. Uh, and this one was released on June 11th of 2021. Um, and really quick, just to kind of introduce who the band is, um, we're looking at the lineup. It's Jonah Thorne on uh, guitars and vocals. We have Justin Fornoff, and if I pronounce your name incorrectly, I do apologize, um, who's on bass and vocals. We have Brian, uh, again, uh, may pronounce the name incorrectly, Brian Prosser on drums, percussion, and vocals, and then Tyler Norris on guitars. Um, let's honestly just dig into this one. First impressions, Gabe, what are you thinking? Um, so if you were a fan of like OG early 2000s screamo metalcore movement, then this is the band for you. Like this is filled with perfectly executed sloppy fills, riffs, unpolished vocals, just the punching for emo. They just double down on nostalgia and and, and perfect a reinvented record, a reinvented sound of the old. Mm-hmm. Like on the surface, I wanted to not like this album, but an innate part of me can't seem to dislike it just due to the familiarity with the bands of early days, like Norma Jean, Sworn In, Every Time I Die, If These Arms Were Snakes, and so on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I definitely made the note that this sounds like something that would have come out in about 2008. Um, it's just very old school. Um, and one of the things I Very found old school for something that was like 13 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, you know, as I was listening to it is just because, you know, especially being the um, kind of early stages, this is only the sophomore album for the band. Mm-hmm. But it reminded me a lot sound wise to the first record by the Devil Wears Prada, as well as in some ways the vocal delivery and some of the riffs of the first Motionless and White record. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Um, which I think Dear Love by Prada was 2006, and the Motionless and White's mm-hmm. first album, I want to say, was about 2008 or 2009. I believe it was 2008. Yeah, you and you honestly might be right. So, um, and so it was really something, you know. And I definitely saw the similarities in that those those old school bands and those old school records. Um, it definitely was a little bit chaotic, mm-hmm. um, which I think you can kind of get some uh, like Dillinger Escape Plan vibes yep. out of. Um, so I was th- that's kind of where I was thinking at. Um, musically, um, I mean, we we touched on that pretty clear. Um, what about the lyrics though? Uh, th- this is where I stop liking the album. <laughs> Lyrically, like they're just the same vapid, unspecific, anger-filled lyrics I would expect from early day metalcore. It's like just a lot of repeated lines with the overall theme of the song, um, like "See Sycophant," uh, and they just really perpetuate the reason behind the group. It's an outlet of emotion for the members and yeah. just capitalizing on the nostalgia factor. Yeah. No, and I, I think. You? I'm kind of in a similar boat is one of the things is kind of looking at some of the the lyrics and especially um, like Last Tango in Paris, um, which I'll definitely get into a little bit more detail. But I had actually found an article where Justin Fornoff had actually wrote um, and was talking with um, NotFest.com. And they, he actually went through and broke down all of the different songs and kind of was given a little bit of background. Um, and I'll be referencing that here throughout the podcast. Um, but he kept, definitely references um, this very nihilistic take on love w- with Last Tango in Paris. And if you look at the lyrics, is he pens very, um, I think, very well that kind of idea. Um, but there is also points where kind of in this similar vein is he just repeats the same things over and over. And I'm like, 
I don't like this at all. And it, it like I it honestly made me genuinely angry in certain songs. Well, alrighty then. I'm I'm curious to see uh to see what they say in that article because I didn't see that same article. Yeah, so that one's definitely gonna be yeah. interesting. Um artwork review. Um the the first thing I could think of was an X-ray. Um and yep. it, this one was kind of it's I'm gonna try and describe it as best as possible. Is it looks similar to an X-ray, but it seems to be distorted. Um, but you're not really seeing an X-ray per, per se, but you're actually seeing like parts of a human being. Like yeah, it's so it, it features like a blue digitally created image. Um, it just shows like blurring with a faint image of a woman from the chin down, with like her hand across her chest. Um, the it gives a good Im- impression of like replication, which the mm-hmm. the title of the album's replica of a of a strange love. So I feel like it kind of um, gets the replication as well as adds the element of strangeness uh, created by the album title. Um, I wasn't able to locate the artist for this cover. Were you? No, I wasn't able to, but honestly, now that you explain that as I do see a note that says upon further inspection, it appears to be a female question mark with their <laughs> hand up on their chest. So that's hilarious. Um, yeah, honestly, let's get right into the track by track breakdown where we're going to go through each track one by one and just kind of give our thoughts and break down what to expect with this one. And this one opens up with a song called Our Distress Entwined. And this song probably is the most one that reminds me of old Motionless and White. Yeah, um, this album opens up with just angry riffs and leaves no question about what this album and this band are about. Mm -hmm. Like throughout this entire album i wasn't really uh a fan of the clean vocals but like this song was the most bearable um i overall like the track and i think it has a lot of nuance to it and the rest of the album does too that requires more than one listen to it because the fir- upon first listen it just feels off yeah but then as you dig deeper into it you like realize that it's a lot more of a strategically placed imperfections yeah. that make it more akin to like that old sound of those imperfect records that people produced of these bands that we used to love. Yeah. And, and um, funny enough is this is actually um, the finished product in Fornoff says is the finished product was a track that we felt was a powerful tone setter. Um, and from the first time he listened to it is he wanted it to be the album starter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe, and I, I may be misquoting, but I believe this was actually written at the same time or was almost completed at the time they were recording their uh, first LP in 2019. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so it, it's been around a little while. So in a way was the, the first song that was written for the record, which was kind of a neat little um, insight into the back. Uh, the kind of the backstory of this mm-hmm. record. Okay. Yeah. And then and just uh, lyrically, it's it's kind of taken more, again, of that nihilistic love approach. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's really a common theme we see throughout the album. Like, it's love and broken hearts like we used to see, but then it's just more of a despair kind of uh, feeling to it. Yeah. Um, that we didn't quite see as much before. But now it's uh, obviously given the last year, and so it's uh, it's reasonable. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't blame them for that. Um, the following song is called Last Tango in Paris featuring Knocked Loose. And as I looked into this one more, is the only Knocked Loose member that we found in this one is actually Isaac Hale. 
um, who is actually the guitarist and backing vocalist, and he's actually the producer on this record. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was uh, actually kind of neat, because um, when I saw that it was featuring Knock Blues, I just figured that it was going to be featuring the main singer, and I listened to the song, like, none of this sounds like him at right. all. I didn't hear any dogs barking. I didn't hear any <laughs> 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 And so, like, I, it was just very very confusing on first listen for me. Once I was reading through the lyrics, and it, like, differentiated who it was and everything, and then I looked into who Isaac Hale actually was, um, that made a lot more sense to me. And yeah. I thought that was kind of cool, because he's primarily a, a guitarist, mm-hmm. and so having him featured as a vocalist on here was kind of just a a new way to incorporate a feature on an album. Yeah. I, I, I like that aspect. Of yeah, it. and I think it was... Um, you know, neat, just uh, really outside of just how the feature was done. But it's like it's you really don't see producers actually feature in songs. So being able to have this the producer in the songs a little bit more prevalent, um, I thought was kind of a neat thing. Um, yeah, the riffage this, in this song was super dope. Yeah, this honestly, this song was kind of chaotic and mm-hmm. like I'm not sure that I like it. Um, <laughs> like it's. And, and I definitely find that a lot with the um, with the entire record, and it kind of made me realize how there are some of the bands of old that I definitely don't like or I'm not as big of a fan of. So Matt um, doesn't like Every Time I Die, Sworn In, or uh, American Standards or anything like that. <laughs> I've actually I've, I've listened to a little bit of Every Time I Die, and I'm actually um, fairly impressed with them. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, my, my listening to them is really small outside of that tangent. Um, so the interesting thing is, um, and, and again, the uh, referencing that uh, not fest um, thing is, oh, I'm sorry, that's uh, for a different one. Um, but it was actually the source of this article I wasn't able to find. Um, but Justin had said this song is a song about desire and satisfaction through a nihilistic lens. Um, and he was listening to a lot of Motley Crue while writing the lyrics. And he also brought up that the um, there was a lot of his like favorite 80s vibes were in this song. Um, that the 80s vibes in the Motley Crue bit was from the NotFest article, um, just for clarification. Um, and I thought it was interesting. And then Isaac Hale was actually there in the early stages of the writing of this song. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, just him having such a hand in the writing of this song really just adds to just a little bit of excitement. And that's about where the excitement ends for me. Yeah, I wasn't hugely impressed with this track. Um, now, I understand that I'm not I, – I personally don't like Motley Crue. I've not really listened to them a whole lot. Under, but, uh, that's fair. I don't get that vibe at all. I <laughs> I really don't either. And like as I look through the lyrics, um, I'm kind of sitting there and I'm like, I, I don't really see it either. Like Motley Crue's all about partying and stuff, and I didn't get that party vibe in this song. They're all about partying, and now they're all about quitting sets before they can finish because Vince Neil can't vocally keep up anymore because he just didn't take care of himself for 40 years. <laughs> can he get an F in the chat, boys? <laughs> um, but this and um, this one was the first single release for the record, mm-hmm. and um, I think it may, just based on that, it may be the most fitting for a first single because it does set the expectation of what to expect with this record. Yeah, the, the first four songs on this record all like give a very perfect description of what this album is supposed to sound like. Yeah. And um, I, I feel like it's probably a good segue to go ahead and lead into the song Sycophant. Um, this is going to be the, the third song on the album. And uh, 
I like this song a lot. <laughs> I like the riffs in it. My issue is, is it feels like the riffs just trying to build up to a breakdown the entire song. And then we hit the breakdown. And the breakdown kind of sucks. The breakdown was super sick. I'll fight you right here. <laughs> <laughs> I was not a fan. Because I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, bro, it's about to get hype. It's about to get hype. It's not hype anymore. Uh, was, <laughs> that was definitely hype. You'll rot, you sycophant. <laughs> and this, I think this feels like the most 2006 song of the record. This felt like it was influenced by a lot more hardcore. So like it, yeah. the, the guitarists felt a lot more like they were uh, done by like Sepultura or, uh, I or, get, or I Spite even. That. Uh, without the, the deathcore from Spite, like they had like mm-hmm. kind of those same hardcore influenced riffs and stuff like that. Um, so I, I actually really enjoyed that just as a, a hardcore fan in general. And I don't care what you say, that ending breakdown was sick and it was the highlight <laughs> of the of this whole song. <laughs> Lyrically, it's boring. Yeah, that's not, yeah. And honestly, like we we kind of find that the um, the lyrics of the the record are like if you kind of look at them as they seem to tell the story and tell the story fairly well, it's just, Again, as you said earlier, is they're just repeated so much, and that that's really one of the big downfalls of this. Um, and the the repeating lyrics, we haven't even hit the worst part of it yet. But oh, you no, know, I have thoughts on that. We will, we, you know, we'll we'll foreshadow that, and um, let's kind of just get into the next one, which is, uh, and I I'm gonna pronounce this wrong. It's Nitschke Nietzsche. is dead. It's Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Yeah. That well, I learned something today. Um, he, he was a, uh, a westernized philosopher, uh, or excuse me, eastern philosopher that had some uh, <clears throat> interesting thoughts, and we'll leave it at that. Um, this song gave me some Norman Jean and Swarnin vibes. I could honestly, <laughs> I could see that. Um, and so Fornoff states that this is the first in a series of three tracks that co- all come from a particular perspective. Um, and this one is an analysis of Nietzsche's philosophy. Um, th- it's a little over a minute of chaos and Dillinger escape plan. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's all the chaos and noise that they can manage to make with the, lo- within the loose definitions of a song structure. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's super short. It's like a minute 30 or something like yeah. that. And it contributes to the really short run time of this record, which is like right around 34 minutes. Yeah. That um, sounds about right. And it bleeds into the next song really smoothly. I actually really like this song. Um, just like, like it's actually one of the few songs that I do like from a lyrical standpoint, as well as just overall, like I, I enjoy the chaos uh, of it. Gabe. Yes. I counted. You want to know how many words are used in this song? How many words are used in the song? Man? 17. Nice. 17 words. Like, listen, I, I get that, you know, self-expression, like it, it's art. You can do whatever you want, but like 17 words and it's just repeated the entire time i was just this this physically frustrated me hey matt hey gabe it's gonna get worse (laughs) this so fornoff's um in that not fest article states that this song is relatable to those who have fallen from grace from circumstances outside of their control and if, as you kind of kind of read through it, I mean, you're not reading through all that much, is you, you're able to kind of tell what he means by that. And you're able to to dig it out um, pretty quickly, and it's made pretty abundant. Um, but there's there's really just not a lot of substance in this song. This is another fairly short song. I think it clocks in about two minutes. 
We should probably say the name of the song. Uh, sorry, <laughs> this um, the the song we're talking about is called "Love's Labor's Lost." Um, you, just so that way, you know, we can <laughs> make sure that there's a song title associated with this one. Not a lot of lyrical content there, but it seems to tell the story, I guess, fairly well in 17 words. Yeah, so this feels like a track that would be included if it were a concept album. I can see like, that. Like uh, Mute or 13 by Sworn In off of their Death Card album. Mm-hmm. Like, But this, it just, it obviously isn't a, a concept album, and it just repeats itself over and over for 2 minutes and 17 seconds, and it feels like a waste. Like, Yeah. It was created to pad the short the already existing short run time and just feels like it's just trying to make the listener uncomfortable with the dissonance behind it. Mm-hmm. When in reality, they're just uncomfortable with how much time that this song takes up on the record. <laughs> like following the minute 24 runtime of the previous song, like it really detracts from the solid offering that was Nietzsche is dead. Yeah, no. And I, I, I have to agree with that is this one, you know, it's just two minutes that could have been put to something else in it. It feels like an like where the the prior song felt like an interlude that would have fallen really nicely into the next song, um, and just been like and especially a trope that we've seen a lot is you see these interludes and kind of the dissonance and the kind of chaotic nature, and then all of a sudden it cuts into the you know the the band coming in full um you know full gear and just going um. And, you know, kind of seeing all the like that kind of vibe is I was kind of expecting that to happen. But unfortunately, we got one interlude and then a interlude with a little bit extra. And it, it just felt like they were trying to double up on something that was unnecessary. Yeah. Like uh, Nisha is dead gave me a lot of the same vibes that Crossgates did off of the new Acacia Strain record. OK. Uh, Slow Decay. So like they had done um, I breathed in the smoke deeply and it tasted like death and I smiled, um, which is a very different and unique song for the Acacia Strain to try. It was received really well, but it was a very long, drawn out kind of um <clears throat> Just very flowy kind of song. Okay. And then Crossgates comes in, and it's just a minute of of sheer force, and like they don't let up at all. <clears throat> and then it goes back into the rest of the regular Acacia Strain stuff that we were expecting to see that made the album number five in, on on Billboard. Wow. And this song, like I feel like Nietzsche is dead, is the Crossgates of this album, mm-hmm. but then it's followed up by something just that is such a weak offering that it doesn't. Really, it, it, it takes away from it. Yeah. Um, and then it, and then from there, from Love's Labor Lost, it goes ahead and jumps into anemic, the same six words. Uh, Matt, how are you feeling on this one? The chorus in this one genuinely made me angry. I, this... So, let me, let me guess here. Was it the fact that there was not a single phrase of six words in this song? I mean, that probably didn't help. That, because that's what <laughs> set me off. <laughs> Like this, he's, he references the same six words, and then the next lines that follow are the five words. How will I escape this? And like that's six syllables, but it's not six words. And I can't figure out what six words he's talking about. <laughs> I there this honestly, like the more I remember, um, just as, the more I listened to this record, is it's the more I became frustrated and i remember the first time i heard this i was actually working and i was like yeah i'm gonna listen to this just kind of you know have it in the background and you know the dissonance i was like okay this is fine like it's nothing but like the chorus in this one 
just popped up and I, I just asked questions and it's it's almost one of those things it's like I understand in 2006 where like this sounds coming out and people are like oh this could be the next big thing this is 2021 like how, so why it's is the next this? big thing because it doesn't sound like anything else <laughs> <laughs> check yourself Matt <laughs> sorry <laughs> but like I I just was like who approved this they did Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, that being said, ending riff slash breakdown, super dope. Yeah, this, I I gotta say is this, this song alone really brought the, um, the whole record down. And um, which is honestly funny because Fornoff stated this was one of their favorites in pre-production. <laughs> so take, take with that as you wish. Or take with that what you will. Um, but we'll jump into the next one, which is Eyes of Sulfide. And, dude, you want to hear something dark about this song? Absolutely, I do. So, Fornoff explained the lyrics were triggered by an especially terrifying moment of sleep terror he experienced after his grandmother died. I. <laughs> so, so, that's fun. Um I, I was reading that, and he, as he was kind of explaining it without going into too much detail, is um, in that Knotfest article, he goes and he's like, yeah, what, uh, what I'm pretty sure I saw is I'd like to just not remember. And I remember reading that, and I'm like, I would hate to be you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just have that this song doesn't really add much to the album. <laughs> like I, I, it, I, I like it more than the wasted tracks like Love's Labor Loss and 99 and 44 out of 100. But uh, it's just it's more cool riffs, more unpolished vocals, more chaos to feed into the album's overall themes of discordance, anger, and nihilism. Like mm. that's really all it does. It doesn't really have anything new or fresh that kind of. Yeah, and up. and and the notes that I have here is like the song gave me hope because of how much it ref. You know, it felt like the the big warp tour bands and mm -hmm. like the big metalcore bands in their early stages as well as well as a little bit of the crab core mixed in yep. um, really strong in the riff department, but the chorus is it stood out, but I don't know if it's for a good or a bad reason. I haven't quite put my finger on, <laughs> on that one. And yeah, that's about all I've got for that one. Um, then it'll jump into dies. I Ray um, the riff on this song honestly reminds me of a blend of kill switch engage and August burns red. I have a note here that's kind of in a similar vein. <laughs> this reminds me of 94 Hours by As I Lay Dying. Yeah. yeah so I, funny I enough, I listened to this song, and I went and I paused it. I went and I listened to 94 Hours by As I Lay Dying, which, mind you, came out in 2003. <laughs> Guess which song was uh, produced better? Oh, obviously 94 Hours. That was yeah. intentional. Obviously. <laughs> like, like again, kind of going back, it's 2021. Like, and I understand, you know, again, the self-expression is like, okay, you know, if, if they're trying to write music to really cater to the nostalgia, which has become a very big seller um, in the in the last few years, I'd go so far as to say within the last 10 years is nostalgia has sold like crazy. Uh, another big seller, it, like really, if there are two big things that sell everything, it's sex and nostalgia is, <laughs> I mean, realistically, if you look at it. So I th and I don't know if the the band was just like, hey, we really like this nostalgic sound. Let's just write it. Or they're just intentionally they just accidentally were like, this just happens to be what we are and just ran forward with it. But it feels like they're taking 
all the stuff from those old early records for the metalcore bands and even some post-hardcore stuff, and they're kind of bringing it all together. Mm-hmm. But I almost feel like they're bringing the bad parts of it, but like sprinkling the good stuff. And it's it's one of those re- things that the more again part of the reason why the more I listen to the record is the more I became physically frustrated and um I. To be completely honest, the more I think about it, is I kind of would rather listen to the Escape the Fate record than this one. Um, just because as I'm listening, wow, <laughs> like I, and it's it, it's because at least with the Escape the Fate record, is is at least somehow easily listenable. Like I was able to at least sit down and did it suck? Absolutely, but I was able to at least sit down and enjoy it to a degree. Matt? When we first did that song, did that record, you even said on the podcast that you had to turn it off to the three songs because you couldn't do it anymore. No, yeah, no, I, I yeah, which I is it? That. <laughs> was it easy to listen to? Or was it Compared that? to this, it's easy to listen to. Wow. Um, I, I just was. I'm really not liking this, and that this song really was a uh, one of those things. And here, here's what's funny about the like that sloppy production is Fornoff stated this was the last instrumental written during the pre-production sessions in Kentucky. The first draft of this one was actually a fairly different-sounding song, so it was reworked in the last day or two of the time that they were there in Kentucky. Because they're brilliant and they know what they're doing and adding in the sloppiness to give that impression of nostalgia. <laughs> Honestly, this song had my favorite vocal delivery on the album. Really? <laughs> it, it did. It like It was one of my favorite vocal de- deliveries. It just the distress and panic in the screams are absolutely felt. Mm-hmm. And then more breakdowns. All the breakdowns. Give me more breakdowns. <laughs> I do love breakdowns. You even said last like week. I love blast beats. You, you said last week that you wanted more breakdowns out of a Rise Against record, you heathen. I give you more breakdowns than you hate it. So what do you want from me? <laughs> I, I'm a very uh, – I'm not a picky eater. I'm a picky li- music listener, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> Uh, then this, uh, I hate this next song. Uh, I lost th- brain cells listening to this yeah, one. Yeah, so I the, the album it. jumps into the song 99 and 44 100, out of 100. Uh, this song is just straight up a waste. Like, it feels akin to Love's Labor Lost, but it doesn't serve the purpose other than to add runtime and doesn't hold any, like, lyrical or musical value to the album whatsoever. So let me let me go into some detail with that, thanks Please. to uh, <clears throat> Mr. Fornoff. Um, so this is the second song following that philosophical arc that started with Nietzsche is dead. Um, it, with the song composed of, um, and I, I'm going to mispronounce this, so please correct me if I'm, I do, um, Kabbalistic numerology, angel numbers, demon numbers, and a Thelemic inspired chorus. Um, Fornoff also states that- How am I that- supposed to correct you on that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I said Kabbalistic right I don't know. I have no um, idea. Uh, yeah. Well, tell and me, Matt, what do these mean? Gabe, you're asking me the wrong questions. You know, you're the man with the research. You should know this. 
<laughs> so honestly, I this song I hated so much that I just didn't really want to put in the effort. Um, but he did state that the chanted numbers in the track are from a spoken word rendition of Rudyard Kipling, the, I'm sorry, the spoken word rendition of the Rudyard Kipling poem entitled Boots, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know what made me the most angry about this? What's up? So they couldn't even do 666, right? Like I was sitting there and it's like six, 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 seven. Four and I'm like, okay, seriously, guys, can you just? Well, so after just a brief looking up, it looks like Kabbalistic numbers and numerology are related to Judaism. Um, they don't believe in six 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 because they don't believe in anything past the first five books of the uh, the Bible. So that would explain that. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really all I want to go into because it's um, the first thing that pops up is mystical and kabbalistic numbers in ancient scriptures, and I'm like, ah, nah, man, I'm down. That's <laughs> I'm uh, that's, that sounds like something that we're not trying to put into our search, uh, you know, search history. Um, I I've really got nothing else to say about this song. Yeah, neither do I. We'll go ahead and move on to the next one. Uh, next, we've got a fractured dovetail romance. Matt, how are you feeling on this one? I really got a lot of punk vibes early in this song, and then it kind of evolved into the metalcore kind of post-hardcore vibe that we we found really a lot in the record, um, or that we, really we see heavily through the entire um, record. And uh, Fornoff states that this instrumentally, this is maybe our most dissonant track, which I can kind of see, but not really at the same time. They go full send on the intro of this track. Mm-hmm. Like it is just in your face, whether you like it or not. Um, the the band wastes no time in bringing back the heavy and chaos into the song after that abomination that was the last track. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is honestly one of my favorites on the album. Um, lyrically, the song makes the most sense and has the most direct meaning behind it, which I can get behind. Mm-hmm. And it's just especially since the rest of the album took such an interpretive approach to itself lyrically. Yeah, and but. and Fornoff did state that this um this does follow the classic wrist meat razor heartache theme. So mm-hmm. um and you you kind of hit it right on the head. Is just having that vibe with it is definitely a nice thing. Um, the next song is and in Gabe I can already hear a hot take coming. Uh, this summer's sorrow too, growing old in the waiting place. Gabe, tell us how much you love sequel songs. <laughs> So sequel songs usually suck, uh, and or the first songs were so forgettable that it, it has no place in being a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, I will bring up a few of them. The Unforgiven series by Metallica. Unforgiven 3 is the best one. 1 and 2 are honestly kind of a waste of my time, and I will never listen to them. If we're listening to Straight from the ba- Path, Badge and a Bullet, the first one is amazing. The second one, Hot Trash. Uh, if we bring in uh, the guillotine part two, this war is ours. That's the best one out of that uh, from uh, Escape the Fate. I the actually first one, have to disagree with that one. I'll, I'll die on this hill. <laughs> I will die on this hill, good sir, whether you like it or not. And then you'll have to – never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then like uh, uh, Tears Don't Fall part two from Bullet from a Valentine – Hot trash that compared was hot to the trash. first one. Yeah, like that it, was hot it's just trash. It, it's just trying to capitalize on something 
that doesn't need to be capitalized on. Like at that point, like it's it's like a sequel movie. Nine times out of ten, the sequel movie is going to be worse than the than the next one. So like mm-hmm. one of them is always going to stand out, and I feel like that's going to detract from the original and yeah. or the the sequel. So I feel like it's just shooting yourself in the foot whenever you do a sequel song. Yeah. No, and I I can't argue with that. That being said. I hate the vocal delivery on this song. This song is akin to like waiting in a uh, like a, a doctor's waiting room, surrounded by old people coughing. I hate this song. <laughs> you know what's you know what's funny about that hmm. is um, Fornoff actually referenced that this song is basically about purgatory. <laughs> so like you could not you could not have hit that nail anymore on the head like the the fact that you without knowing that our article and you saying that brings a smile <laughs> to my face this like, brings me genuine joy they took unpolished clean vocals to the max on this song yeah. and like I, I can deal with an imperfect unclean vocal like i feel like there's a, a certain rawness and, and dissonance to that that can be appreciated imperfect clean vocals i are, are right up there with singing songs about songing a sing <laughs> up there with with uh uh, sequel songs and, and just it, all of those like pet peeves. Like yeah. if you, if it's a poor unclean or a poor clean vocal delivery, like it, it's always an instant turnoff for me. Yeah, no, and honestly, that's and over four minutes of a runtime. This is the longest song on the record, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. So the um. Yeah, again, referencing that NotFest article, um, I love how really it goes into detail. Um, just kind of the the backstory behind it is um, both Isaac and Tyler really like the idea of doing a sequel to the song This Summer Sorrow from their first EP back in 2017. Um, and Fornoff says that the sequel borrows from the general key of the original, but besides that, there are a few similarities. Um I'm not really, you know, as I was kind of listening to it, is I can't really put my finger exactly, you know, how to describe this song and just the kind of chaos of it. I mean, it it continues what we've really seen throughout the entire record of the the metalcore and the the kind of dark, um, dreary vibes and. Again, you know, the the lyrics kind of talking about this purgatory um, that, again, Gabe just hit right on the head, which, again, <laughs> brings me just absolute joy. Um, it's just another offering on the record to me. Um, and, you know, with that, we'll just jump right into the last song, All the Way Alive. And I got to say, OK, Marilyn Manson, chill out. I, I have a different approach on that. Um, All the way alive. Uh, I'm pretty sure the song's DOA. <laughs> Oof. It, it, so I like the melody introduced in the song, mm-hmm. and then nothing else is done with it for two minutes. The song repeats, "Dead sadistic swine." This will be the last time, and finally ending on "I will show you." And it was just a super weak note to end the album on, and it felt like they could have offered so much more to close out the record if they had like like if this summer sorrow too had been just this absolute banger destroys every speaker that they come out of. And then they ended with the song. Sure. Cause like we've seen the, the smaller, the slower songs ending records yeah. a, a number of times here just on the podcast alone, much less records over the past few years. Um, but this one here, like after the already dud that was this summer sorrow too, like ending on this note 
felt even worse and just a, a terrible way to really cap off the rest of the album. Yeah, and I and I definitely agree that this should not been a, have been an album closer. It, the way that the electronic elements in this one were built is I could imagine this more as an opener um, and just kind of, like I could see like a live set being opened with this and just kind of just that really weird electronic kind of build. Mm-hmm. And just, like that, that's definitely how I really looked at this one. Like, and, and who is the dead pig? What will be the last time for what? And what are they going to show them? There is no indication in this song about what is going on. And it's le- like all the interpretations left up entirely to the listener. And that's not the proper way to handle things. <laughs> so so here's a couple of things that I, I, I noticed. In that. Me. So the Notfest article, you want to know what Fornoff said about this song? What did he say about the song? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> So so after after looking through the entire article and kind of looking all that, do you remember what I said about Nietzsche is dead? Yep. It's three songs. We've seen two of them that he outright explained. We saw Nietzsche is dead and 99 and 44 one hundredths. Those are the two songs that were he blatantly referenced. So based on that, as I'm thinking, and it, I, I think Fornoff, you know, and this is this is basically my interpretation of it, is I feel like he's very much trying to leave the interpretation to us, mm-hmm. but I think this is song number three for that philosophical arc that he was referencing. Um, and, I, you know, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but this one, this one was just weird. Like, it, I, I, again, I very much stand by, I think it could have been a really good album opener or even a, um, like, a live set opener. But a, as a closer, is it's just really, really weak. Is it reminds me, um, I, I, I was going to say it reminds me a little bit of the Darko closer, but it's mm-hmm. only, like, certain aspects of that one um, where the, the Darko closer was actually, like, a, pretty clean way to close the record off especially with the kind of ending sequence um unfortunately there's just really no sequence of this song that it it can cap off the record unfortunately yeah that explanation does make a little bit more sense Mm -hmm. um i I kind of respect it a little bit more now not enough but a little bit more yeah and and, (laughs) you know again unfortunately with fornoff really not um you know, really just telling us no comment and like kind of us having to look into it. Um, but that's just kind of the vibe I've been get that I kind of got. And um, especially after he said, you know, the three songs that we, he only explained two of them, you know, I, I started putting two and two together, but you know, how much two and two is actually, you know, being put together properly or as the artist intended is, is hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the track by track breakdown here on the replica of a strange love by wrist meat razor and just to make a note of this as well our uh, track by track breakdown uh, ran longer than the length of the runtime of this record <laughs> isn't that something yeah, we're, we're clocked in at about 38 minutes right now <laughs> wow that's i i just let let's let's rate this scale of one to eight tentacles gabe let's hit me with it uh i'm gonna give this album a three um, so like it, it wasn't amazing by any means. There, there's a lot of flaws with the album, but the nostalgia factor kept it going from any lower for me yeah. because it just was akin to so many of those like chaos things that I got into as a kid. Um, and I appreciated that a lot about it. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I, I, like I said, I just I appreciated it. I it's not gonna be something that I really ever return to. I'll probably listen to the next stuff that they put out just so I can hear it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, th- th- this really uh, didn't hold a lot special for me. But the the nostalgia factor just kind of kept it from going any lower. How about you? Sue? I honestly, so right here I have a three out of eight. Um. Eight. After after revisiting the record. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of spent a, a, a couple of days away from it just to, you know, recover the brain cells I lost in 99 and 44 one hundredths. Um, I got to give this one a two. Um, it's <laughs> this is the, the chaos of it and the fact that they were able to bring um, really, you know, really good riffage and the, the heaviness and stuff. I really appreciated it. You know, the, the familiarity, um, really feeling a lot of those, like, Creatures by Motionless and White vibes, the Dear Love by Prada vibes is, you know, having that little bit of nostalgia and kind of familiarity was nice. Um, but I just, I don't plan on touching this with a 10-foot pole. Um, so, Matt. Hey, Gabe. You uh, you said a little bit earlier that uh, Escape the Fate was a little bit better, but you rated this one higher than Escape the Fate. Did it really? Yeah. You, re- you rated Escape the Fate a 1%. <laughs> no, I think you were the one that rated it a one. Yeah, so did you. <laughs> we were both in agreement <laughs> on that record. <laughs> my apparently my rating system is skewed. However, I think I would much rather go to the Escape the Fate <laughs> record than this one. Regardless, I d- I did not like this record. Like it brought just enough things where it's like, okay, it's got some things, I guess. But like that's literally where that's literally where the the praise ends. I'm sorry. Um, so, Wrist Meat Razor, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, but I'm just not a fan. So, before we finish up this podcast here, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about what place nostalgia has in today's music. Yeah. Um, and kind of just, like, what effect it'll take. Like, is it going to be good for genres, or what role is it going to have in our future? I think it's it, it's going to... I I definitely think that the nostalgia kind of being as present as it is in music is going to be kind of bittersweet. Um, I, I feel like in some ways it could be good. The only issue I have is it, it's hard to say um, because like we just did the leveler 10 year anniversary where we saw August Burns red go and they added an additional song to the release. And then they also re-recorded everything and then also kind of met, changed it up by also including features. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, the idea of nostalgia, it and tr- I feel like it, the only way that it's really going to be done is by either introduce reintroducing the sound or doing re-releases of older material. Uh, we saw Motionless and White do a anniversary release of Creatures. We saw um, Leveler re-release for the ten year. Um, we saw Zombie Two uh, from the Devil Wears Prada as a continuation of the original Zombie. Um, so there can be benefits, but I feel like there is also in a way some reliance on it. And there, some of these bands trying to capitalize on older, really popular material and just trying to kind of cash out on it. And I think that's where things are going to start getting a little bit hairy, if you will. Yeah. So I'm kind of in the same boat too. Cause like we've been seeing this massive nostalgia wave here, uh, in the, in 2020, 2021, a couple of years prior to mm-hmm. where we saw like constant re-releases and remasters of video games. We're seeing uh, live-action remakes of classic Disney movies and yep. or just sequels to, to classics and stuff like that that really didn't need. 
and uh, we're seeing things like the like uh, like you said the Leveller uh, 10th anniversary edition. We're seeing a lot of um, well now that shows are coming back, we're seeing 10th anniversary shows and 20th anniversary shows that are coming around that, that are, are trying to capitalize on this nostalgic feel. And I feel like there's definitely a place for it in music, but like you said, there it, it's going to be more in the the vein of re-releases and re-recordings, remasterings, and that kind of stuff. Because, um, like, I mean, for existence, or for, for existence, for instance, like, um, Trivium, my favorite band, they released their Ab Initio, uh box set, which was a re-recorded or a remastered version of their first album, um, Ember to Inferno, mm-hmm. plus their three demo records, uh, Blue, Yellow, and Red, or Carellus, and they, they have weird names for them as, as well. Mm-hmm. But, like, that kind of stuff, like, that's how a band can really capitalize on that. They give something... They add something new to it, something that hasn't been able, easily accessible by somebody to before. Yeah. And then they can choose to run with that. It's not like anybody's missing out on anything that the band did uh, if they don't pick up that kind of stuff, especially if it's in a limited release. But it's also at the same time, like, it's helping the band. It gives them a little extra cash to fund on whatever new music that they're doing next. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like developing an entire sound around nostalgia isn't the healthiest way to go about it because at that point it's going to be like this. It'll be just a, Oh, this is cool. And then they leave it be and they never touch it again. Like this reminds me of my youth, but there's a reason we left that stuff in the past. Yeah. No. And I, and I can respect that. And, um, you know, as you were kind of talking about reissues is like Metallica is doing the black album reissue. And I think it's, uh, like they're they're doing the the main reissue, and I think it's like a remastering yeah, of it. As yeah, they, they're doing as a they, remastered the, version of it, but then they're doing like fifty some odd covers of of uh, from other bands that mm-hmm. are going to be included on it that encompass just a wide variety of, of genres and, and styles. Yeah, and, and just to name a couple of the artists, is like we're seeing Miley Cyrus, we're seeing Chris Stapleton, Weezer, Weezer, um, Volbeat, which I think is probably the only like true metal band. Um, that's on it, and Volbeat's really not metal. They're mm-hmm. more just like hard rock, but it's the closest thing to what Metallica actually is. But and then they've got um, a a cam. I believe it's a Cambodian singer, if I remember. Um, I think that does. Um, uh, if you're refer- referencing the Who, they're Mongolian. No, not not Mongol. Oh no, um, not Cambodia. Um, it, it's a country with the the letter C. I I, I can't remember. Uh, maybe Colombian. Czechoslovakia. Um, <laughs> I know it wasn't Czechoslovakia, but and and, and it, you know I apologize because I, I I completely butchered that. Um, but like we're seeing these renditions, not only you know at like Miley Cyrus doing it in um her her kind of new side, which is kind of being pushed towards rock, um at least as of recently, but we're also hearing. Um, people sing these songs in their native tongue, the hue being one of those references, and then the the singer that I was trying to point to, but unfortunately I can't remember what country of origin they were. Um, 53 different artists doing, what, a 11-song record? Yeah, a- th- this, so when I saw this, I and I've, I've stated this before, I'm not the biggest Metallica fan. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I enjoy some of their stuff, but overall, like, I, I just, they're not really for me. That's fair. This actually makes me excited because this is Metallica capitalizing a nostalgia right. Yeah. So, like, they're, they're re-releasing their stuff, and that's cool. That's great for the Metallica fan, but for somebody who's not into Metallica, for somebody who is a Miley Cyrus fan, who is a Weezer fan, who is uh, a The Who fan, like, 
they're going to be able to get introduced to this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. listening to the artists that they already know that they like. Yeah. And so that then allows them the opportunity to go and listen into this band that they might not have had exposure to, or they might not have had a specific exposure to beyond one and enter Sandman and something mm-hmm. like that, that they might've found something in there that they didn't like. And they Bridges get to hear the gap. It, exactly. And, and I feel like this is probably one of the smartest moves I've ever seen Metallica do. Um, now, if they could fire Lars Ulrich, that that one will top it, because uh, Lars is take. terrible. <laughs> but I will die on this hill. Lars Ulrich is one of the worst drummers ever. <laughs> I, I, and honestly, and as I, I think I've alluded to before here on the podcast, as I'm a, a big Metallica fan, and unfortunately, I have to agree. Like, if you if you actually if Lars stepped back and just ran like ran the it was the band manager, and they let somebody else who is a better drummer do the drums. That would increase them like so much. <laughs> I mean, like, just look at the video from when uh, Joey Jordison played drums for Metallica and mm-hmm. look at how, just listen to the difference in how it sounds. Like, my favorite, I have to probably say Creeping Death's my favorite Metallica song. I heard Joey Jordison play the drums on that and it genuinely got me excited. I wanted more of that because it's. I'm sorry, but Lor- Lars is basically the ACDC drummer of thrash metal. Yep. It's just this Absolutely. same beat every song. Um, but, you know, it sounds like a conversation for another time. So thanks for listening <laughs> to our review of Metallica. <laughs> uh, no, so, yeah, that, that was a good discussion there. Um, before we finish everything off, we uh, do want to go into the hidden track, which is where we talk about something related in the world of music. Uh, Matt, what do you got for us today? You know what felt really good, Gabe? What felt really good, Matt? Ordering my first tickets to go to a concert in probably close to two years. Uh, it felt so good. What show did you? Uh, what shows did you purchase? So the ticket that I got, and it was actually for uh, my stepdad and I. Um, I had got it for him for Father's Day, but going to see Megadeth with Lamb of God, Trivium, and In Flames. Mm. Um, really stoked about that show. Lamb of God's my favorite band. Um, if you've, you know, me in person is I have a, a big lamb of God tattoo in the middle of my shin. Um, it's, let me tell you, that was a spicy, spicy tattoo, but th- again, another conversation for another time, <laughs> but I'm really excited for that show. And honestly, since you kind of got me into trivium is actually being able to see them live and kind of, you know, actually hear Matt Heafy in a live environment. It's going to be really exciting mm-hmm. for me. Um, but a couple of c- other concerts is August Burns Red doing their uh, Leveler 10-year anniversary tour. I'll be picking um, tickets up for that one, too, because they'll, they'll be uh, doing it with Era, which we've already recorded. Re- yep, uh, and then uh, Like Boss the Flames as well. And uh, Fit for a King. Unfortunately, they're not going to be at the what? Arizona one. Yeah, no. Fit for a King's not going to be at our <laughs> stop, which actually bummed me out quite a bit because of how much I've actually been getting into them. Um, I started getting into uh, into them quite a bit before I saw them with the Devil Wears Prada. Funny enough, on the 10-year anniversary of With Roots Above <laughs> tour. Yeah, um, the, the f- so the funny thing about Fit for a King is I've seen them probably about 12 times now. Which is hilarious. And it's not intentional. Yeah. Like, I, I've never intentionally gone to see Fit for a King specifically. They've always just been on a lineup for a, a concert that I just wanted to go to to begin with, and they were just there. Fit for a King for you is a lot like Born of Osiris for me, where I completely unintentionally saw them. I think I've seen them four times now, yep. and it was a, for, the, for the exact same reason as you. 
Um, that show. Be on the lookout for their new album here. We're going to be doing a review on that sometime in July. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> um, and then the other show that I'm really excited about is uh, actually Black Dahlia Murder with Carnifex and Rivers of Nile. Okay. Um, I'm really excited because I wanted to see Rivers of Nile right around the time their most recent record, Where Owls Know My Name, came out. Um, and actually being able to see them finally and then actually seeing Carnifex, who I've been exposed to since um, my you know late high school and then actually mm-hmm. one of my old roommates, he was a big fan of them and kind of was like, hey, listen to this band. These guys are fun. Yeah, Carnifex <laughs> was one of my first deathcore bands that I got introduced to. Yeah, so I, I've seen them a couple times. They always put on a good show. Okay. Yeah, no, that's – so I'm definitely excited to see them and just see what they're all about. I bought tickets to the uh, – so it's the Acacia Strains doing a 10th anniversary <laughs> tour <laughs> for Wormwood. So there, it's it's two shows back-to-back. They're playing – one night's going to be – it comes in waves because they never actually got a chance to uh-huh. do a touring cycle for that. They got about four shows in, and then COVID happened. Yep. Um, so they're doing uh, a touring cycle for uh, It Comes in Waves with also select songs off of uh, Slow Decay, which is their Ooh. most recent album for the, the Friday night show that I'll be going to. And then the Saturday night show is they're going to be playing uh, Wormwood in its entirety, uh, which I'm super excited for. Uh, they are re- they are they're touring with um, at Harm's Way, although they're not going to be at the Arizona show here. But uh, Kublai Khan is going to be here. Oh, dude, Kublai Khan's nasty. And they do some nasty stuff. And uh, there's also going to be a couple of the bands that are on the the bill that I'm totally spacing on at the moment. So they're going to be uh, also here with Orthodox and Dying Wish. And uh, I've seen Dying Wish before. They do a really good job live. And um, I'm, I'm really excited for this show. It, it's, it's back-to-back. So it's, for here, it's the 29th and 30th, mm-hmm. or 28th and 29th or something like that. I'm at both shows. Like, I'm 100% there. There, there is nobody taking this away from me. <laughs> if, if I'm in a hospital, you're wheeling that gurney into that show yeah, for me. Buddy. I, I need to see them again. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can't blame you for that. No, and it's shows coming back is a huge, like I'm really excited about Um, one show that uh, I'll be completely honest. I'm a little bit underwhelmed by is uh, the, we came as Romans tour that was announced with the devil wears Prada. Oh, absolutely. I'm not <laughs> like, and it's the devil wears Prada is fine. I'd like to see them again at this point, just to see if uh, they, they can really keep up again. Mm-hmm. I don't care about We Came as Romans at I, all. <laughs> so I've seen, I had the pleasure of seeing We Came as Romans back in 2014. Um, and I, you know, I got to... Is it a work tour or... Uh, no, it was actually uh, U-Fest. Um, okay. And it was, I think what ended up happening was uh, Asking Alexandria Tour converged with, I maybe it was in the Day to Remember Tour. Um, and it just happened to converge all at the same time. And it you uh, K, uh, 98 KUPD, the local radio station, was just like, we're going to make it a big festival. And there were a ton of bands there. Um, and I got to see them there. So I actually got to see them with, when Kyle was still alive. Mm. Um, and so that was really cool. And I kind of do want to see We Came As Romance um, just to kind of see how the – the dynamic has changed with uh, the unfortunate passing of Kyle. Um, but at the same time as like, I've also listened to, we came as Romans since 2010. Um, and I, I, I remember very uh, vividly listening to them and just kind of how much it, you know, brings me a little bit of joy, I guess is a good way to put it. <laughs> so a little bit of nostalgia for you. Um, but it's just the lineup outside of We Came As Romans and The Devil Wears Prada is like those are really the only two bands I'd be seeing. The other two I've heard the names of, but it's just I haven't really 
um, given that much thought or look into. Um, I know one of the bands is Day Seekers. Um, I actually really like Day Seekers. Really, like, they're they really cool. They're so they're off of the um, the In Vogue Records lineup. Okay. Um, so they're a lot more of kind of like I don't want to say ethereal, but like they're a lot more um, focused in their sound and lyrical content. Okay. Um, it's I, I really like them. I've seen them a couple times as well. Yeah, so I, I'm definitely really, like I said, I'm really excited for shows to come back. And um, just as we see more tour announcements is um, just trying to get into get into shows and pick up tickets and just be able to go back to things being normal again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But that'll wrap it up for us today, guys. Uh, we do appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us. Please go like and rate us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and on Podbean. We also do have a variety of socials now uh, on Instagram, uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and that's all of them. Yeah, uh, we're, we're at Tentacle Bop on all of them. So if you guys could go give us a like, follow, rate us, that would be awesome. We do appreciate it. And uh, next week, we are going to be jumping in to the new Beartooth record uh, that'll be releasing here uh, on uh, Friday as we record this. So I'm really excited to do that one. I'm, I'm pretty excited as well. Um, that's, I mean, just based on the singles that we heard earlier in the year, um, is it, it brings a lot of really high hopes in this one. So we'll see if the, the hopes keep, uh, you know, keep staying high. Yep, absolutely. But until next time, guys, we will see you later. Catch you in the next one.